Well, hello, Jim. How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. You? Good. Yeah, I'm good, man. Um, so, George Monbiot, we went to see yeah. a little while ago. Yeah, it's quite a while ago we recorded this one, isn't it? Yeah. Before, so, number three. Yeah, number three, episode three. Before the world turned upside down with coronavirus and all that. Yeah, that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what, mate. Jeez. I mean... It, the world seemed such a cool place back then, and things were like really good in reflection. Yeah, with hindsight, 2020 vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I can't remember what when it really was that we saw. We went to see George. Um, do you remember? It was last year. Yeah. I can't really remember when. Yeah, it was last year, and then uh, I saw that. John Lennon line, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. Yeah. So, <laughs> podcast got turned on its head along with everything else. But. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. This is why this might sound a bit weird, because you're sat in under a duvet somewhere recording this, and I'm sat in my kid's bedroom recording my bit. <laughs> <laughs> All good fun, mate. Not quite the face-to-face conversations we were planning, is it? No, but that's um, yeah, that's the way it is now, isn't it? I mean, everyone's doing this, these, these Zoom calls and everything, and uh, yeah, world's a different place, mate. But yeah, yeah, that's actually you know because when we went to see George, we went around his house and we sat like right in front of him in his living room. I mean, it's just unthinkable doing that now. Yeah, yeah, no one's going to be inviting us in their house. <laughs> no, pretty much. <laughs> Um, well, let's um, let's tell everyone about our thoughts about George before we went, I guess. Before we start the show, a quick word about our sponsor. This show is sponsored by X-Brain, who is the exclusive distributor to Onit products in the UK, including Alpha Brain, Shroom Tech, Total Human Optimization, and the amazing Primal Kettlebells. They also stock mushroom coffees from Four Sigmatic and awesome supplements from NeuroHacker. So go to www.xbrain.co.uk and use the discount code THELEDGE at checkout to get 10% off of all orders. Okay, so George Monbiot. Yeah. How did you come about getting in touch with him? And how did you hear about him first? Um, I've been aware of him, like, being on, like, Channel 4 News and different programmes. I've seen him on TV. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of like a environmental activist and in um, involved with politics as well. Yeah. I've always sort of known of him as far as I can remember, but quite an interesting character. You know, he's, he's done things a bit differently in his life to most people. I don't really know that much about him. No, I don't really know much about him. I know he's uh, an environmentalist and he's travelled around the, the globe quite a bit and he's trying to... Um, yeah, push for different, uh, push for, for political changes in different countries and climate change and, and stuff like that. Yeah, he's involved with um, Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion, that's right, yeah. And he recently got arrested, quite, it was in the news, um, as part of the protests. I think when I looked into him a little while ago, he'd done something, there was a film, The Age of Stupid, that's it. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen that, The Age of Stupid. Yeah, was he in that? Was he? I don't know. It's the, it's the age of stupid has got um, 
Pete Fossil. That's it, yeah, yeah, Pete Fossil White. Um, but I don't know how he's involved in that film. I just remember looking in uh, looking at George Monbiot on Google a long time ago and I saw that his film came up for some reason. I don't know. We'll have to ask him about it. But um, I'm really looking forward to meeting this guy, especially with all that's going on with uh, all that's going on with Extinction Rebellion. Because I'm a little bit of, uh, I have mixed views about Extinction Rebellion. I mean, obviously, I think what they're doing is all what they're pushing for is is totally valid. You know, I really do believe in climate change, and I think something needs to be done about it. I'm just a little bit concerned as like all protests and things like that, how they go about it. You know, because if they end up pissing off a load of people and doing things that disrupt people, disrupt people's lives, um, it just sometimes it just when people get pissed off or they can't get to work because there's a roadblock or something like that, it just it, it makes people lose favour for for those sort of um, protests and and it, it doesn't help create a good change. It just causes issues and problems and conflict and um can't think how to put it, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it can be counterproductive, can't it? Yeah, 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 that's right. But it'd be interesting to see what his um yeah, what his take and, and involvement is on with Extinction Rebellion. I'm sure he's gonna be really passionate about it. Yeah, I mean I think he's been doing this sort of thing for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lifelong cause, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh where is he? He's, uh Oxford way, is he? Yeah, he's near Oxford, yeah. Okay. Right. Let's go meet him. Yeah. Alright. Well, nice to meet you. Yeah, and you. Thank yeah. you so much yeah. for your time. No, thanks thank you for coming. It's really yeah, nice. it's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's on recording, so it's just a very free, open conversation. Sure. And, uh, we haven't really got a, uh, uh, a format or anything that we go through. Just, um, yeah, it's just very free, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we obviously you're quite a well-known person, um, sort of relatively speaking, and... I'd say a little bit more well known with recent events. Yeah, well, it's um, I mean it's all taking off now. You know, it's like um, you know, I feel you know I've had sort of you know thirty four years I've been in this business and most of it's been really frustrating. Just like sort of yeah, you know, these are the most important issues on earth, guys, and mm. no one's giving it any time. And it's just, and suddenly everyone's saying, oh yeah, we do want to hear about this. Can you do this now? And this and this and this and it's yeah. like oh you want to do thirty years of work in one year? You know. Yeah. Basically, it's it, it's it's you know it has been frustrating because that was the period in which we it would have been much easier to act, you know, much much easier to do all the stuff we're talking about now. Thirty years ago, twenty years ago, even ten years ago. Yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, it's it's it's, it's 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 sorry to interrupt. It's you just saying that's quite funny because we were we went for breakfast earlier together and we've got a friend who's um. Don't know how to put it. Having a bit of a crisis in his life with issues, mm. um, and uh, we were saying it's only probably uh, it's it's going to have to hit a point in his life where it's really going to have to have a dramatic impact, whether financially he runs out of money, mm. 
or his health takes a, a bad turn, but something's mm. going to have to really, something's going to have to break. The yeah. rock bottom. Yeah. Before yeah. he recognises it, and it's going to force the change upon him. And it's mm. sort of, um, you know, like what you said, you know, you've been trying to push these messages and, you know, change the world in your own way for the last 30 years. And it's only now that it's all come to the forefront of everyone's mind, but because it's, it's actually starting to affect everyone, isn't yeah. it? true and and it's i think it's interesting to draw the link between the sort of psychological crisis and and the ecological crisis um because you know denial affects us in very similar ways in in in, in that way and um and you know there's all all of us have got stuff in our lives that we deny mm. you know, that we're, we're just not facing properly and the ecological crisis is like the sort of mega version of that where it's like this huge thing this cloud hanging over us which we just don't want to turn around and see yeah and so we just poddle on through life pretending it's not there yeah. and you know just just as you might do with a failing relationship or with an illness that you're not going to the doctor about it's 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 very similar and i think there's some um, some strong parallels to be drawn with the whole denial of death is an existential crisis that we're facing a collective ex existential crisis but it is the way we deal with it is quite similar to our individual existential crisis which is that we're all going to die yeah, yeah yeah and um and we we're quite practiced in sort of pushing that out of our minds because if we didn't we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning yeah and and so in a way the climate crisis the ecological crisis taps straight into that denial of death and it makes it all the harder for us to engage with it yeah 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 mm. i think on a general public level i agree with that do you think the sort of the fight against sort of common sense and science and you know you get about naming people certain journalists and certain radio presenters and people like that that are just adamantly it's just nonsense mm -hmm. do you think that's the same symptom that it's unbelievable denial or is it something more nefarious yeah well i mean a lot of that is is like funded by fossil fuel companies i mean i, I when it really started kicking off the sort of really virulent form of denial which i guess was about 15 years ago or so um maybe a little more than possibly 20 years ago um and I started getting all this really nasty hate mail. I mean, really unpleasant. Because by then, it, at that time, it wasn't on social media, of course. It was all by email and by mm. letters and stuff. And really, really unpleasant. I mean, horrible stuff. And lots of death threats. You get far fewer of those now. Um, and and sort of threats. You know, we know where we, we live. All this sort of stuff. And I didn't take it all very seriously. Because, I think, you know, if, if they're going to come and get me, they're not going to tell me. <laughs> 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 But but I was like, so you know, where's all this coming from? You know, why why do they hate me so much? And um, and you know, there might be some good reasons for that, but, but it, it it seemed to be disproportionate. You know, mm. that that what they were, um, um, saying just seemed to be out of sync with what I was saying and doing. And so um, what I um, and then I started looking into who these people were, and as I began to dig. I began to find out more and more and gradually discovered that most of the people 
saying the most virulent things were funded by fossil fuel industries. They didn't hate me at all. It was strategic. Yeah. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Thanks, thanks, Liam. Thank you. Sorry about that. It's all right. Yeah. Um, Cleaner. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, brilliant. Um, you have to be careful it doesn't interfere with the recording. That's right. Um, so, uh, yeah, where, where I got to? Um, yeah, so, yes, yeah, yeah, so, so, so it was all fake. Um, I mean, maybe it wasn't all fake, but a, a lot of it was fake. And then I started saying, right, who are these people? And... Um, and I um, started using this amazing archive, the tobacco archive, which was um, um, uh, put online as a result of this massive class action settlement against the tobacco companies. Yeah. And it provides this really extraordinary insight into how these lobby groups work. And what I quickly found was that many of the people attacking me and generating climate denial were the same people who had been working for the tobacco companies oh, before yeah. generating denial about the impacts of smoking and attacking anyone who who tried to um, stand up and speak stand out up against yeah exactly against the tobacco companies and um and and the and there was this massive wealth of documents showing how these people having you know made a fortune lobbying for tobacco um, then started pitching to Exxon and other mm. oil companies to do the same thing for them. And in fact, interestingly, some of the first lobbyists um, against climate science were still at the time working for tobacco companies. And there was um, Philip Morris, one of these tobacco companies, actually was using people um, who were denying climate science as a way of a generalised attack on regulation. Mm. Because they figured if we um, just talk about smoking, everyone will know that we're funded by tobacco yes, companies. Yes. Mm -hmm. But if we talk about smoking and climate science and nuclear weapons and lots of other things at the same time and basically attack regulation in general, that creates somebody to speak a, a smokescreen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and you don't realise that these are tobacco lobbyists. And so so t tobacco companies were funding attacks on climate science, weird as that might yes, sound. Yeah. But then, of course, the oil companies were doing the same as well, and the coal companies, the electricity companies too. And it it really began to proliferate, and, and a lot of people were conned, you know, because then, you know, genuine citizens start, believing this stuff and say oh there's a conspiracy these climate scientists they're, they're they're just making all this stuff up in order to enrich themselves because as everyone knows if you want to make a total fortune become a research scientist yeah. you know, <laughs> you'll be hundreds of times richer than someone say working for an oil company um, and and they want to tax us and regulate us and create this new world order where we're all going to be drones working for the man and of course it's exactly the opposite, you know, in yeah. that the 
nefarious corporations were the people funding all yeah, this denial. Yeah. But you know, there's no pool so shallow that millions won't drown in it. You know, and however yeah. stupid the claim and yeah. the stupid the idea, lots of people will fall for it and become foot soldiers for actually the people who are their enemies. It should be their opponents, yeah, their yeah. enemies, because yeah. um, they're sort of working against their own interests. Yeah. It's like Turkey's voting for Christmas. Type yeah, idea, yeah, and and unfortunately, you know that actually is what happens again and again. Um, people are suckered by this stuff. You know, we're we're born in total ignorance of everything, right? And we die in total ignorance of almost everything because you know what the knowledge you can gain in your lifetime is one grain of sand on the beach. Um, but um, even gaining that grain grain of sand of useful knowledge needs determined study you know you have to really put make an effort to learn about the world around you mm. um uh you know if you want to have any useful knowledge about politics you really have to do a lot of reading mm. and you have to pay attention and you have to sort of cast the net wide to find out what's going on the same about economics the same about any aspect of the world in which we live and and most people you know, don't have the time for it, don't have the inclination for it. We've lost the... Or, or, or it's been built <clears throat> and yeah. the language that is used yeah. has been constructed so the average person can't figure it out. That's right, exactly, exactly. It, it you excludes you. It, it excludes you. And we've lost the public culture of learning. You know, in, in the old days, there were these sort of workers' education movements. There were the blue books in the US, which were all sort of, you know self-education books where you could teach yourself about a particular subject they would sort of collate knowledge very effectively and there was a real sense that sort of self-improvement a big part of that was learning mm. and that's gone now i mean that's really gone and it's disastrous i think that it's gone and and so now we have people railing against the elites you know you have people like nigel farage and um and and um you know michael gove going on about experts i mean these people are the elites mm. they're the yeah. economic elite mm. the political elite but the elites they mean are like intellectuals and teachers yeah. so anyone who's basically been to university they'll say they're the elite and and so they're trying deliberately to create a sort of anti-intellectual culture and to sort of shut down public learning and public knowledge and make learning and knowledge the enemy so that we don't inform ourselves about what yeah. their real agendas yeah. are and what, and what they're doing. And, and it's, you know, and the whole public sphere is now just confusion. And the, the billionaire newspapers, they do everything they can to spread confusion, to, to just tangle people up in a web of lies. And it's the same with the so-called think tanks, these ultra-right-wing neoliberal groups who are really just lobbyists for corporations but they don't reveal which corporations they're lobbying for mm, every mm. so often there's a leak and mm. you find out oh it's working for the tobacco companies who would have guessed or mm. uh, and and for the oil companies you know it, it, you find out by accident but they get on the radio and they say oh this regulation's a terrible thing we've got to cut the red tape mm. and stuff and you think hold on a minute you're talking about public protection sir mm. you know you're talking about what creates a civilized society and you, you want to just destroy it all. Mm, mm. But of course, you know, we, we're just living in this world of lies, of obfuscation, and then we're told not to inform ourselves because people who inform themselves, they're the elite yeah. and they're the enemy. Yeah. So with 
climate science sort of standing as I understand it, that it's categorically our fault, it's happening, the apocalypse is coming. These are uh, politicians, billionaire media owners, oil companies, they must know what's ahead. Mm. Are they looking at it just as short-term power mm. and whatever the consequences are? So to my mind, it would seem that if I was in that position, I would be thinking, oh, it is actually happening. Mm. For my own sake and my own family's sake, I should steer something different to how they seem to be doing it. It's a really good question. I mean, it's a question which troubles me a lot because it's like sort of, you know, why, you know, why don't they care about what's going to happen to everybody? I mean, eventually it's going to affect everyone. Of course, it'll affect their families last of all because sure. they can sort of buy their way out of trouble. But eventually mm. it'll hit their grandchildren. Um, uh, and, you know, at the moment they're dumping it all on much poorer people in other parts of the world who are the first victims of climate breakdown. But, you know, that pool of the number of victims just grows and grows and spreads to more and more parts of the world as as time goes on, because everyone already is affected by it to some degree and will be affected more and more as time goes. So what motivates them? What 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 is what is driving this? And I mean, the first thing to say is, is that you know, this is extreme short termism, you know, which is really sort of seems to um, characterize the real elite, the, the economic elite, the, the political elite, the oligarchs, in other words, you know, most of whom um, uh, most of the new owners of newspapers are oligarchs and, and their interests are very different to ours. And they're, they're very, very short termists. It's all about what can I get now? And you think, you know, what is them? I mean, trying to work out what their motivation is, is for us ordinary mortals very difficult. Because, <laughs> so I once saw an interview with Bernie Eccleston, you know, the Formula mm -hmm. One boss yeah. who's like worth hundreds of millions, millions possibly billions, but I, don't know. I think yeah, yeah, he yeah, might be a billionaire. Um, and he was asked, why do you keep making money? And, and his answer was, it's a way of keeping score. So, mm. so basically, it's like, sort of, you know, where do I rank by mm. comparison mm. to these other things? And then Forbes magazine, which does this global rich list thing, um, wrote this extraordinary article about this Saudi sheikh who had waged this 20-year campaign to get higher up the rich list. And he, he um, offered bribes, he threatened them, he was crying down the phone because he felt he was too low on the rich list. He was number 19 and he thought he should have been number nine or something. Okay. And, and, he, um, and he thought there was a conspiracy against him and you're not counting my proper assets. You didn't value my uh, fleet of private planes properly and yeah, all this yeah. stuff. And it's like, you know, what's, what's going on here? This is, this is really something very weird indeed <laughs> that's happening. Yeah, it, it's actually nothing to do with how what you can use your money for. Yeah. It's all a question of where does this rank me um, by comparison to other billionaires. And yeah. of course, you know, the, the the richer you get, the more your standards change. So so if you sort of say, right, you know, I get fifty grand a year, and you say, well, you know, that feels pretty good. You know, when you first start getting fifty grand a year, you think, God, oh, I'm rich. You know, and you are. Of course, you know, if you get fifty grand a year, you're rich. And you go, oh, this is a pretty comfortable life. And then you think, wait a minute, 
that bastard's getting 70. Yeah. Oh, shit, why is that guy getting 70? Well, I'm only getting 50. This is just so unfair. It's just wrong. It's just so wrong. And then if you get 70, you know, it, yeah, it, it no, just, just keeps, keeps ratcheting. It just yeah. keeps ratcheting. Mm. And, and so you get to the situation where people have billions and it's yeah. still not enough. And there's still that hunger. And there was an interesting survey by Boston University um, which um, um, interviewed some of the very rich and on average they all thought that their lives would be improved if they could just have another 25% yeah. more wealth regardless of how much money yeah. they actually had you know whether they had 100 million or a billion or 10 billion they thought I'd be alright if it was just another 25% mm, mm, mm. and of course if they got that it would still be just another 25%. Mm. There's no point at which it stops. And so what you've got to realise, I think, is that you know we're dealing with people with a really weird set of motivations, you know, who, who are just, just driven by urges which you know, people who don't have a lot of money, on the whole, don't have. And, mm. and yet, unfortunately, these are the people who, to a very large extent, are determining the course that society takes. Now, there's a very interesting study by a Canadian uh, professor called Kevin Mackay, who um, looks at civilizations that have collapsed um, over the course of thousands of mm. years around the world. It says, right, what are these civilizations got in common? Because there have been a lot of theories. You know, some people say they get too complex. Some people say they, um, um, they, um, uh, what was the other ones? Uh, they that they're in the wrong places and, you know, they, um, they which can't support the, um, the, the much more, uh, uh, much higher populations and stuff like that. But he said the, the, the common element in all the civilizations of collapse is extreme domination by an oligarchy. Right. And basically what you get time and again is some people saying, look, we're on the course to ruin. This is crazy. We shouldn't be doing this. But, what the oligarchs want is not the same as what the population as a whole wants. So even if everybody, you know, if you've got an extreme situation where you've just got one or two people in charge and nobody else has got a political say at all, you could have 99.9% .9 of the population saying this is the wrong course that we're taking. Yeah. And you still take that course because you're being driven by the needs of the oligarchs, which, as you know, I hope we've established, are completely crazy. Mm. And, and so it's them who drive us over the cliff. And if you look at the way we're going at the moment, you know, we're moving very rapidly towards an oligarchy, you know, towards a world run by billionaires. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter which country you look at. Either they are directly in power. Mm. You, know, you look at Trump's cabinet, it's full of billionaires. Or um, they are pulling the strings by funding the dominant parties, by owning the newspapers. Um, Telling the millionaires what to do. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and, it's, and it's like, who are the worst possible people to be leading us through this crisis? The oligarchs, the billionaires. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, it, it's that you end up fighting. So, so instantly, you know, as soon as you see it from that perspective, you realise that the the fight against climate breakdown and environmental breakdown is also a fight for political justice. That it's it's a fight for democracy rather than oligarchy. Yeah, we're not going to finish this conversation on a. I'm not going. We're not going to walk out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Preempt the ending. 
Yeah. So, um, you, Scratch the last it, question off. Just, just going back <laughs> to what you're saying about, um, you know, this thing about wanting 25% more, mm. you know, whether you earn 50 grand, 100 million, whatever it is, mm. um, everyone's affected. You know, from what mm. you're saying, we're all in the same situation, aren't we? Mm. You know, however much we earn as individuals. If we all have that sort of thinking, we're all responsible. Do you know where I'm trying to come from yeah, this? I mean, it, it is, it's like an infection. So, so my um, father-in-law, he was um, evacuated out of Liverpool. He lived in the Liverpool docks area. He was evacuated out into North Wales. Um, and he um, spent most of the war um, living in um, uh, the house of a single woman, um, sort of middle-aged elderly woman, with his brother. Um, uh, they were small kids um, in North Wales. And, and he... he later became a historian and he was very struck by what he saw in this little village mm. and, and in her house and they lived in what would now be considered appalling poverty you know some people didn't have glass in the windows and and, yeah. and it was and they ate a very monotonous diet yeah. you know, sort of basically gruel with occasional bit of mutton in that sort of thing um, and they had almost no material possessions but he says they also had no material aspirations they just all their aspirations were spiritual and cultural so it's like their aspiration was to get into heaven mm. um, they're very religious you know non-conformist um, Methodist Baptists um, with this and it was all about you know getting closer to God getting getting yourself to heaven but also about building the community you know there, there was very much a sort of strength in in community life yeah. there and and the idea of sort of bigging yourself up and getting yourself sort of a luxurious house and lots of things to f fill it with and stuff just wasn't even there it wasn't mm. even on the radar and that sounds almost impossible to us today yeah. right? it wasn't that long ago I mean this was the Second World mm. War um, and and it sounds like an alien planet doesn't it but but he, he said you know so many people were like that then they, they, they lived like they didn't have those material aspirations. Mm. Now we imagine that the material aspirations we have today are what people have always had. Yeah. This is the way mm. it is. This is mm. the way it, it's just human nature. But it's not. It reflects this incredibly powerful ideology called consumerism, mm. which like all powerful ideologies, we don't see as an ideology. It's a plastic soup in which we swim. We just don't see it. Mm. It's, it, it completely surrounds us. And... And yet it's, it's been constructed. This is a constructed, deliberate mm. ideology created by advertisers, mm. by marketers, by economists, by governments, um, um, prompting us to want more mm. and more and more, to sort of it just ramping up desire. And you can mm. sort of see the roots of it in the early marketers at the beginning of the 20th century, sort of um, 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 Bernays, um, Freud's nephew yeah. who is sort of saying right you know this is the way we're going to do it we're going to generate needs yeah. and wants where people didn't have them before yeah. and 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 that then becomes essential to the central capitalist project which is generating perpetual economic growth which obviously on a finite planet is a total environmental mm. disaster mm. but you can't have that growth unless you're constantly generating new desires yeah. and new needs and and what that means 
because the people you're appealing to are the people with disposable income, almost as a matter of definition. And as a matter of definition, people with disposable income already have had their basic needs met. Yeah. It means you're trying to sell things to people that they don't, don't really need. need. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and the more you've already sold to them, the more ridiculous the mm. things you have to sell become. Mm. Uh, I, I started this hashtag called Extreme Civilization. So, so people post up ridiculous things which are on sale. So there's a, a pancake bot where you can like feed this photo into this machine which will make a pancake in the shape of the photo. So you can have a <laughs> Mona Lisa <laughs> pancake. Yeah. My kids or, were watching YouTube videos of that the other day. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. A, a pancake of your dog's bottom, you know. And, and there's this huge thing mm. which will take up most of the average kitchen counter. So mm. you're going to use it for a week and then decide you don't have room for it, right? And it goes on the dump. Yeah. You know, and you have an eye potty where your toddler can can continue using their iPod when they're on the potty because you've got this special potty with a slot in it. You've got you've got a smartphone, a smartphone for dogs, um, uh, where, where it can be operated by the dog's nose, so it can take selfies. Dog selfie. I mean, it's it's it's, it's just bizarre. Mm. But this weirdness is necessary to keep the fu system functioning as it stands. You know, if, if you've got this system which is dependent on perpetual economic growth, it has to get madder and madder. Yeah. It can't it fail more to. more extreme and more extreme. That's right, exactly. And so, so it's, it, it, it's not a bug in the system. This is a feature mm. of mm. the system. The madness is a feature of the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much sounds like, when you were saying about the billionaires need 25% more and consumerism is... It's a parallel to like substance abuse and addiction, mm, 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 and yeah. in that it's an extrinsic sort of fix. I'll be happier if I have twenty five percent more billions. Yeah, is the same as I won't feel like this if I yeah. take X substance, isn't it? It's it, you, uh, you're dead right, and and then the question becomes: once you've seen that, as you've rightly seen, who are the pushers? Right. So we know who some of the pushers are. They're advertisers, they're marketers. Mm. Everybody knows that. That's that's obvious. But actually, there's a, a one set of people who are absolutely essential to this system, but we seldom identify them as such, who are celebrities. And, and celebrities are the face, the mask that the machine wears. Because, you know, if you're some grey monolith of a corporation who's... who's um, actual physical entity consists of a P.O. box in the Bahamas, um, which is linked to one in the Cayman mm -hmm. Islands, which is linked to one in the Virgin Islands. Um, you, you, um, you, you can't talk to people in that guise. Right. You can't say, hey, um, kids, associate yourselves with this grey monolith. This no. grey monolith is your friend. Yeah. No, you need Kim Kardashian. You need, you, you need people who can be the face of, of what, what you're trying to, yeah. the face of the corporation, except, they're not even perceived as the face of the corporation. They're just the face of your neighbour. Mm. They're your friend. The friendly face is is talk, talking to you. But what are they trying to do when they're talking to you? Well, you know all the influences on social media. Obviously, they're selling you stuff. Yeah. yeah. But um and and then you know the same faces appearing on adverts. They're selling you stuff. And and that's why we have celebrity culture. Sure, there's always been celebrities, but. It's never dominated in the way that it dominates today. You never used to have a situation where kids could list a whole lot of 
celebrities that they followed. Um, and and we've got this sort of wall-to-wall advertising which is often disguised mm. and it's disguised as an interest in, 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 in celebrities which has mm. been, been generated. And they are absolutely essential to the functioning of this dysfunctional system. This completely screwed up system needs celebrities to work. Mm. It can't work without them. And they, I see them as kind of the missing, the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, it's it's like, it, it, and uh, we just take it for granted. It's just you know, just as we take the idea of constant material aspiration for granted, even though it's quite a new idea, we also take the idea that we're obsessed with celebrities yeah. for granted. Mm. But that too is a new idea, and that's part of the same machine. Celebrities without talent, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not famous for doing anything. Oh. No, sort of saying about sort of post-war in like '66, Bobby Moore mm. was a yeah, celebrity. Yeah. yeah, because he was good at football. Yeah, yeah. Kim Kardashian is a celebrity because because she's, she's famous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And no, like YouTubers. Yeah. I mean, my kids watch YouTube yeah. more than they ought. Yeah. And they're watching people doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And these people are making fortunes That's by right. advertising money. Yeah. yeah. And there's no talent, no ability, no. no benefit to anyone else but advertisers. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, you, you, that, that's right. I mean, it is, it's so striking, isn't it? And, you know, you'd have thought the warning signals would be there when we've got, you know, celebrities as political leaders now. You know, Trump, mm. classic example, reality TV star. Boris Johnson the same, you know, except that the reality TV here is Question Time and and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and you know the other news programs because actually they've turned into a kind of celebrity yeah. outlets, you know, and so and and yeah, we have these sort of fatuous, shallow, insipid, but also very dangerous celebrities now taking over politics, and and it's it it's becoming this universal theme. So you think. You think people would start saying, you know, wait a minute, something very weird has, has happened in here, and it's not confined to Trump, it's not confined to Johnson, but the nature of the media is that we see what's immediately in front of our faces, and we're not seeing what lies behind that. So we think, oh, the problem is Johnson, the problem is Trump, or you know, whatever it might be, mm. the problem is Modi, the pro- problem is Erdogan, the pro- Orban, um, Duterte, whoever it might be, Bolsonaro. Sure, they're all problems, but they're symptoms of the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. So, go on, I was going to say, you know, I, I want to know about. I, I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, it's 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 starting to ramp up, and people's awareness is sort of you know is really increased. So, you know, is there uh, is there hope for the future? But before I ask that, just for all the people that perhaps listen to this who don't know who you are, because you said you had all these death threats fifteen years ago. And you've been working in this, or trying to push this message for thirty years. I would like to know how you got into this. I mean, I know, and people can go on Wikipedia, but it's it's an interesting story. So yeah, don't go on Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I um, apparently was just completely obsessed with nature, even when I was a baby. Like like in my pram, I would just fixate on the birds on the grass and flying over and stuff and yeah. that's what I would follow more than I'd follow people it was just like whoa you know totally into wildlife and um and I and that you know became I became more and more I got quite an obsessive nature and I became more and more obsessed as a kid and my grandma was this sort of slightly crazy old lady who um 
she was really into um, like bird watching mm. and flowers and stuff like that and she had all these really crazy old friends it was a bit like sort of female version of last of the summer wine you know you go around and there'd be all these old ladies in welly boots in their kitchens with their their skirts tied up with baler twine and stuff and and just mud everywhere you mm. know they were living on these small holdings you know very poor but you know had you know a lot of good stuff in, in their lives you yeah. know and, and and again no material aspirations mm. um but and they would um and you would sort of have this you drink tea in jam jars and you know and you go away with a goose egg that they give you and the next day you'd eat the goose egg mm. and I loved it. I just yeah. loved it all. And there were people who lived on narrow boats, and you know, that, so it was this sort of quite. I mean, they're all very old-fashioned, but we would now see them as quite alternative. Mm. But they weren't. They weren't hippies. They, yeah. they were yeah. just sort of old, sort of land workers, really. And um, and and there was something I just loved about them, you know. So so you know, weirdly, as a kid, I spent half my time hanging out with old ladies. You know, that was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you know they were the people I chose to hang out yeah. with and, and and I just learned a lot from them mm. you know, I, I really felt quite connected um, with them in a way that often I wasn't um, with some of the people my own age who were into killing you know they just laughed so many of other boys at the time were just into war you know mm. that, that's what they loved more than anything and they had all these books with gory pictures of corpses in the first world yeah, war yeah, and yeah. stuff and yeah. I just wasn't interested I couldn't see it at all and um and so it's sort of slightly weird did you I feel think. different like you yeah feel like no you... I did I did I mean I was always I was always a weirdo you know? okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I was very self-aware well yeah self-aware. well yeah I was made, I mean even if I wasn't a, a self-aware I was made very aware yeah. of it you know? but um and then um, I I did zoology as my degree, which wasn't wouldn't have been my choice. But at the time, there wasn't any proper environmental science to right. be done. Not that I not the sort that I'd be interested in. Only these very specialist courses about you know if you wanted to be an environmental engineer or something like that. What sort of year was this? This was so I went to university when I was in nineteen eighty two, and then while I was I mean I I didn't you know. I mean, the course was, it was sort of super academic and it was interesting, you know, sort of ecology and evolution and neuroscience and and, and all sorts of, you know, really interesting topics. But mm. it was just not practical enough. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't engaging with the real world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you could have done the whole course without ever seeing a real animal and oh, you still would yeah. have got a good mark, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it, it was just, you could see lots of bits of animals and you could Ooh. chop them up, you know, but it wasn't. Um, there wasn't the sort of whole systems thinking which I'm, I'm really interested in and and a lot of us got quite frustrated with this and said look you know, we said to our lecturers there's an environmental crisis going on you're not telling us anything about this um, you know this you know in the early 80s you know we knew there was an environmental crisis yeah. going on and um, and and so you know could could we have some teaching about you know what's happening to this natural world you're supposedly telling us about mm. And um, so grudgingly, one of the ecology lecturers gave us this um, talk and it was uh, it was just terrible. You know, it's like any of us could have done better. He said, yeah, the Amazon, yeah, it's all being cut down. It's these peasants, they're uh, going in. I would machine gun them myself. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> so it, it was, oh, it was pathetic. You know, it was just hopeless. Um, and so I became really disillusioned with academia 
you know, I'm a nerdy person yeah. by inclination. You know, I always had my nose in the book when I was a kid, and you know, I was good at studies, and you know, and really sort of got did a quite sort of deep dive into all the things I was interested in. But but it was just like, yeah, this this system stinks. You mm. know? It's just it's actually almost deliberately atta- uh, detached from the real world. It's like sort of not connecting yeah. to what is important, and it's and it and it seemed to me that it was surrounded by denial. That actually, you know, the, I, I remember later on working in the Amazon and um, I did quite a lot of work with research scientists as well as with other people. And I remember this bloke coming storming into the lab one day saying, the bastards, the fucking bastards, they've destroyed the whole area of forest. And I said, oh God, that's terrible. Oh my God, this was incredibly biodiverse. Yeah, well, never mind that. My my research project's just been ruined. <laughs> so, and it was like, right, okay. Yeah, what's important? Yeah, exactly. So 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 um, and I remember one of my lecturers telling me, he said, look, you know, I became an entomologist because I love insects, and the only research money I can get is to find new ways of killing them. So you know, there was almost you almost got driven into not thinking about what was yeah. what was going on yeah, and how yeah. your work was being used and stuff mm-hmm. so um so i i then thought well right all i want to do is to expose the bad shit that's going on yeah. and it's clear that the establishment as a whole is not doing that and it's not actually fit for purpose and, I, and I, so I, so i was quite strategic about it you know I was, I was very stupid in a lot of ways but but i was the one thing i was clever about was thinking where can I be most useful? Mm-hmm. Here? Where can I intervene? And I thought, right, so what are the things that are missing? Well, there's lots of things missing, but one of them is investigative environmental programs. Yeah. There just aren't any. Yeah. And, and there still aren't, but you know, there, there, there weren't then. This was, so, um, um, so I really spent, I sort of did as little work on the degree as I could, and I spent the last year and a half at university just, just, trying to get myself into a position where I could do that. And mm. the, the only place I thought I could do it through was the BBC's Natural History mm. Unit, mm. which, you know, uh, was then as now making all these beautiful films about how wonderful wildlife is, but showing us nothing about what was happening. The actual effects mm-hmm. and everything, yeah. Yeah, and so, and so I just broke down their doors. I mean, I, I got the, the, the literal words of the, the boss of the unit were... You're so fucking persistent. I've just had to give you this job. <laughs> so it was easier to give me the job than to keep saying yeah. no. So, so, um, so I, I went in. Uh, really, you know, as a total rookie. I mean, I tried to get myself up to speed as much as possible, but you know, there's a lot you have to get your head around. Um, and they brought me into the radio side of it, where they thought I could do do as little damage as possible. <laughs> keep you quiet. Um, yeah, that's right. And and so. Um, and so I had like you know a couple of weeks to learn how to make a program, you know, which was really you know incredibly steep learning curve. And the first program I made, I went into the office on Monday morning and I went home on Thursday night. I just worked the whole way Relentless, through, yeah, yeah. you know, four days and four nights, just straight through to 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 get it done. And and it was all right, you know, the program yeah. was okay, but only because I'd put like ten times as much work as yeah. you ought to put into it. And by the end of that week. I was like, right, I think I know how to do this now. And so and so once I'd, I'd got a handle on it, then I started casting around for the 
big untold stories. Mm. And we cracked some amazing stories. You know, we, we found this bulk carrier, this huge freighter, um, which appeared to have been deliberately scuppered off the southwest of Ireland and was now link- leaking bunker oil all over the coast. And we found this radio hammered recorded instructions from the shipping company to drive it onto the rocks, basically as an insurance job. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a really massive scandal. Yeah. And, and, and then we discovered this scrap metal merchant who had accidentally bought the liabilities, thinking he was, only, he was just buying the salvage rights to take the phosphor bronze propellers. And, and we said, um, so what are you going to do about the pollution? He said, well, nothing to do with me, mate. I just paid a quid for the salvage rights of the wreck. Why do you think it was so cheap? Oh, I just thought it was a bargain. You, so you paid one pound uh, for these salvage rights. Yeah, yeah, phosphor bronze propellers, they're worth 67 grand. You know, I'm going to make a fortune from this. You realise you bought the liability. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, no, you bought the liability for the wreck. So so it's now your responsibility, wreck, yeah. And you got to clean up the pollution. And they say, no, no. And we say, yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, here's the small print, you know, this is what, this is what we've read, and he was, and he started like weeping down the phone, you know, it's like, like, yeah, <laughs> and this poor bloke, you know, it's yeah. like, no idea, so he could be completely robbed, you know, yeah. totally ripped off, and yeah. you know, bankrupted him, and so, and and so, you know, that became an international scandal, you know, a massive story, and we won a Sony award for it, and you know, it, so I thought, this is it, you know, yeah, this is yeah. exactly what I came here to do. This is, mm-hmm. this is precisely, and then we. We, un, um, we broke open this chimpanzee smuggling network where we had the head of customs in Abidjan offering to sell us chimpanzees and, you know, all, um, uh, all these really massive, stories. important stories. And so I thought, right, this is my life. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Um, that's, that's great. You know, yeah. I've, I've landed on my feet exactly what I want to do. Then in 1987, two years after I started work, Thatcher launched her coup against the BBC because it had made these programmes exposing these really embarrassing things about the government. Mm. There was one called Maggie's Militant Tendency, showing that several people in the cabinet had been involved in fascist organisations in their youth. Um, There was another series called Secret Society, showing all this unauthorised spending that the government had been doing without passing Uh it through parliament (laughs) and stuff. And so that. Yeah, exactly. That's (laughs) right. And so, and so, obviously, so you know, what do you do if your nefarious activities have, have been exposed? Do you change your activities? No, you you, you shoot the messenger. Yeah. yeah. And so she moved in, forced the director general to resign, changed the board, appointed a an accountant to run the BBC, um, and just and my boss came in the day after the director general resigned and said, "That's it. No more investment mm. in program making." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Whole organisation." I've had it from the top. No more investigative programs. I said, well, you can't not have investigative programs. I mean, it's like this is the BBC. Yes. That's what yeah, we do. You know? And and yeah, and he said no. I'm f- so I can't do anything about it. He said that, that that's, that's what we've been is. told. Yeah. And and it's like it just seemed insane yeah. to me. I mean, because to me, investigative work is the centre of journalism. Yeah. You know, with, yeah. without that. There is no journalism. Journalism is, is either investigative or it's bullshit. Mm. You know, it's, it's yeah. one of the two. Mm. You can't. You, there's no middle ground between it. Either you're trying to discover what people don't want yeah. you to know, yeah. or you're just talking bollocks all the time. So, so you know. And, and I, w- I was so shocked by this. It was like I sort of went into shutdown. You know, for a couple of weeks. It was like I just 
couldn't function. I couldn't uh, make sense of the mm. world. And yeah, and the BBC's never recovered from this. It's, it was you know that was the point at which it moved from being this quite bold organisation yeah. to this tim- timid little cowering mouse, which it still is. And and so um, I quickly realised, and my boss realised as well, that I had no future there. You know, it just wasn't. You know, so this I thought I was set up for life, and I just realised there's nothing there for me at all now. Yeah. I, can't, I just can't operate in in this situation and and but what i'd been working on um was what i was intending to do was to make a series about the indonesian transmigration program which was this massive program um under the dictator suharto backed funded by the world bank by the u.s government the uk government to move hundreds of thousands of people out of java and bali and into the outlying islands of Indonesia. Now, you know, this was the most culturally diverse country on earth, hundreds of different languages, totally different cultures. And what was the purpose of the monitoring? Well, yeah, so the ostensible purpose was to relieve population pressure in Java and Bali. The real purpose was to create a sort of security state Right. across the whole of the 14,000 islands of Indonesia and have it all sort of integrated into the centre. Um, and, and yeah, they were quite in, internal documents. They were quite overt about this is what we're doing. So they were sort of settling army veterans along the frontiers and all this stuff. And we're basically going to suppress the native populations and we're going to grab the resources and we're going to, yeah. what they, they the call it, Indonesianizing. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was basically, it was, it was, uh, it was colonialism. It was, but within the nation, because it's a crazy nation. You know, it's like, like massive. I mean, it's 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 the width of Europe. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's just crazy number of different peoples thrown into this one nation, and and Suharto was, you know, one of the nastiest dictators there's ever been. I mean, he's responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of people, totally ruthless bastard, amassed billions, of, you know, it, through corruption. Mm. Um, and and I thought, uh, you know, and, and this had, you know, not only devastating impacts on the local people whose lands were being taken, also um, from the reports we were getting, not, none of them from journalists, but from like missionaries and NGOs and, and people's movements, also pretty devastating for the, a lot of the migrants who were being dumped, mm. you know, thousands of miles from home, um, but also a total ecological disaster as... You know, this was the beginning of the conversion of forests into oil palm plantations. They were, um, they, it was all tied in with resource exploitation, with minerals prospecting, mm. with with um, com- industrial capture of fish and all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and I thought, well, this is like the biggest story in the world that no journalist is covering. Yeah. So this is the obvious next thing that I want to do. Um, and... Um, and and I had imagined I was going to make a series for the BBC. The BBC yeah, yeah. Like we were all sort of set up to do it, and then this disaster happens, and so it's like right, okay, well, I still want to cover this story. Yeah. So I I went to some publishers and said, look, you know, um, I'm crazy enough to go out and cover this story. Um, if you'll give me some money to do it, um, I I will write you a book, which will be a really exciting book. <laughs> 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 about going out there to cover this yeah, story yeah. but it'll also be about the story so it's going to be an investigative travel book yes. yeah. 
and 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 they they believed me so, <laughs> so they, they they gave me just enough money to to, to pay for it and then i thought i uh, some suddenly had this panic i thought i can't do this by myself you know it's like like it's a, you know this is yes big really scary stuff mm. yeah and big so i phoned up my my oldest friend um adrian arvid who's a photographer and at the time he was working in this dead-end job he was just hating it and i said uh, look adrian um, I'm leaving the BBC. It's all gone to shit here. Um, I've gone to this publisher um, uh, because I want to go to um, Indonesia, cover this massive story. It's unbelievably dangerous. Um, it, it, it probably quite a high risk of getting killed. And he said, yes. I said, what do you mean, yes? He said, the answer's yes. I said, I haven't asked you a question yet. He said, yeah, I know, but the answer's yes. Mm -hmm. I'm coming. So, I like, <laughs> so you can imagine these two completely insane 24 year olds you know so you know this is why wars get fought because you don't actually believe in death when you're that yeah, age yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. you think yeah yeah okay well, you know, everyone says yeah, exactly everyone says it's very dangerous but it's very dangerous for everyone else you know but you know it's not yeah. going to happen to me so um we um you know got learnt a bit of Indonesian, learnt as much as we could about the situation, found out that, you know, basically no one was covering this. And mm. we found out that the epicentre really was this occupied territory, West Papua, which um, is the western half of the island of New Guinea. Mm -hmm. um, it was never mandated to be an Indonesian territory, but it was seized by the military. And mm. since then, there was basically, and still is, genocide taking place there. Um, and the transmigration program was being used as one of those genocidal instruments in effect i mean this is what we were hearing back so we thought right we've got to get to west Papua. i mean apart from anything else it was just this fascinating extraordinary place which was in the process of being screwed mm. so um we we um but we no we weren't allowed to go there you know you you couldn't um get a permit to to go and you know work as journalists there and in fact as we quickly found you just couldn't get a permit for any purpose mm. to go mm -hmm. to West Papua so we turn up in in Jakarta and we do a bit of work in Bali and Java first of all looking at the situation there we go to Sumatra um, do a bit of work there um, and then we thought right we've got to get to West Papua so we go to the police office to try and get a, a Surat Jalan a pass to go to, to journey to to West Papua and we just can't get mm. there. You know, we're pretending mm. to be bird watchers and missionaries and you know, whatever it took. Yeah. Still couldn't get one, couldn't get one. And then and and we like you know, for days and days we were trying. And then one day, um, after standing in a queue all day long, you know, as we had been constantly, um, I walk off down the corridor to get a glass of water and I see this door which says head of immigration police on the door. So, and it was the door was ajar so I thought right I'm going to go in and reason with this man I'm going to talk to him yeah. man to man yeah. that's the way it's going to be yeah. done and I'm going to persuade him to give me the, 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 the permit so, so I knock on the door and there's no answer push the door open there's no one there but on the desk is this pad of headed notepaper and a stamp and I think Right, it's not the police. <laughs> Who needs permission when you can write it yourself? Wow. So, so, so I nicked the pad, stamped a few of the bits of paper, and, and just and and went went Got to find Adrian. Yeah, and we wrote right. ourselves this permit with the help of an Indonesian friend who sort of got the language right for us. Um, <laughs> and and so we were able to get on the plane to go to West Papua, um, and um, and and from then on in, I mean, it was just 
crazy. You know, this um, incredible place. We, we've managed to link up with the um, resistance movement. We um, then wanted to get down to the sort of epicentre of it all, which was in the south of the country, and found the only way we could do that was to get to the central highlands and, and to walk for four weeks um, through, through, through over the mountains mm. and through the forests. And we had this extraordinary journey where um, we uh, ran out of food very quickly. We got lost in the forest, completely lost, um, and basically cut off because everywhere you went, the, there were these incredibly steep gorges mm. and, and cliffs and, and this huge tract of land with nobody living in it, no sign of habitation at all. And um, it wasn't clear why. It had obviously been uninhabited for about 30 or 40 years. Um, and some people said it was a malarial zone. Some people said there'd been a massive war there. and But it was just totally empty yeah. for days and days walking. So, you know, we just ate what we could catch, which was basically rats, insects, snakes. Were you um, like, this is panic station time? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no, I mean, we went for whole days without eating anything and yeah. we were burning like four or five thousand calories yeah. a day because we were climbing up faces which were almost sheer just yeah. pulling yeah. ourselves up by by trees and so it was extremely scary and and we started to get the, there were leeches everywhere and we started to get these lesions where these um leech leeches had bitten us and we were covered in blood all day long because they sort of they dropped down from the trees and um, and they bite you on the head and then you've got this sort of mask of blood yeah, and yeah. it looks, looks like a zombie. <laughs> and but um, on our ankles where they bit most because they get up, they climb up, yeah, um, up, up, up over your boots and, and onto your ankles. Um, it just wasn't healing, and we yeah. later found out it was vitamin B deficiency. You can't heal without it, and these these. So these sores were just getting bigger, bigger and bigger, and, bigger yeah. and really quite and eating into the flesh. It was getting you know really dangerous, and we were already very thin. You know, yeah. lost a couple of stone um, on on this journey, and and um, and we and we went through mind blowing places, incredibly beautiful. And when we finally came out into habited areas again, met people you know who clearly hadn't seen any outsiders in their lives, and um, just just quite i mean the most amazing place on earth mm. and and at the time those lands were intact yeah you know, they weren't being, untouched there was no outside um, in, 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 in influence at all and um and we eventually came down into these flooded forests where we were wading much of the time and all the insects had moved up off the forest floor and in, into plants and there were these vast spider webs with these big communal spiders building them and then spiders themselves were huge mm. but you know you'd have a hundred spiders would build this web together and it was like fishing line these these they were so strong so you would get as well as having blood all, <laughs> all sort of dripping down you you got these these sort of like funereal shrouds of spiders webs covered in enormous spiders <laughs> Um, um, and then, and then, because you were pushing through the vegetation with all the insects, and in, the insects would then get mm, caught mm, in the yeah. spiders' webs, and so you would look at each other, and you looked like sort of yetis covered in flapping insects. <laughs> and it was just, and then blood underneath. It was just so freaky and yeah. weird. I mean, it was like, it would really look like a horror scene out of a horror film. Yeah, and and then um, one day I was I was climbing out of this flooded hollow onto this little ridge of. Of, of dry land and um, Adrian looks down at me and says oh, 
there's a spider on your head. And I said, so fucking what? There's spiders it's everywhere. everywhere. I said, yeah. yeah, I think I think you might be interested in this one. So, so I sort of sweep my hand over my head and this thing, the size of a rat, this huntsman spider, um, just uh, flies off my head. And then hits the ground and instead of running off, turns around and rears up at me. <laughs> it's like, Jesus. I, I don't know if you've seen that viral video of the, the spider dragging a rat up a fridge in Australia. No. no. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. I mean, this spider bigger than the rat and just pulling this rat up a fridge. It's, it's one of those. Oh, that's that's a huntsman spider. Huntsman yeah. spider. Huntsman right. spider. So it's like, whoa, you know, sitting at it, sort of legs down around my ears, you know, <laughs> this monstrous thing. And eventually, we got through and um, got down to the main rivers, got in a dugout canoe, um, travelled for a few more days and got to the area that, that, that we'd intended to get to. Um, and <laughs> we were able to get food and stuff. and um, Got recovered. Yeah, well, yeah, after a few adventures down there because we weren't, obviously weren't supposed to be there. And, yeah, so, and we got stopped by soldiers and, you know, couple of times so nearly killed you got so shot at um well uh, uh, not in not in west patford in brazil yeah but not in west patford um i got stung into a poison cone by hornets i got swept away down a, a, a mountain river all sorts of you know crazy stuff happened yeah, yeah. but we came back with this massive story yeah really big powerful horrendous story and a lot of adventures to sort of embed it in so yeah yeah make and so I wrote that first book called Poisoned Arrows, um, and that did quite well. So on the basis of that, I got an advance from the publishers to go and work in Brazil. And my aim there was to see you know, what, what is driving the movement of people into the Amazon. You know, and, and, and what I quickly found was that land was being stolen mm. on a huge mm. scale. And basically, people were being completely dispossessed mm. and had nowhere else to go. So, I this is for the deforestation and taking the resources, all the wood and yeah. Well, well, this was this was so this was land theft outside the Amazon, uh, dispossessing people of everything, right. giving them no choice but then to move into the Amazon oh, see, and become either gold miners or try to farm there or try to find some sort of living and. And so you'd have this sort of chain of chaos, yeah. you know, with these knock-on yeah. effects. So I got very involved in uh, with communities fighting the um, big politicians and the landowners and things that were trying to grab their land, and um, and that also became very dangerous. I mean, that's where I got shot at. Very nearly got killed by military police. In fact, my death was reported in the Folio de San Paulo. Um, turned out to be an ina inaccurate report but <laughs> <laughs> it was um, um and um and and it's really where my political education began because working with the peasant communities there who um were just you know prepared to die to defend their land mm. and a lot of them were being killed and mm. many of them tortured and beaten up as well um and just being so amazed and impressed by their determination and their sort of resilience, but also by their level of knowledge. Because um, at the time in Brazil, there was this um, a very strong influence, Freire, this um, um, educator who wrote this book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is basically you know, uh, sort of how the teacher must learn. 
And so you have teachers going into communities, learning about the situation mm. of the community, and then sort of helping people to contextualise their situation. And I remember this extraordinary night um, after I'd just been beaten up by police with a load of other guys, um, lying in a hammock in someone's hut, with a sort of, you know, a clay-daubed hut with a thatch roof, no electricity, no running water, in sort of the real boondocks of the state of Marignan. Um, and we were lying in these hammocks because you all sort of have your hammocks strung, strung across the house and so, so it sort of hold all of you together. And these guys were arguing over me about Gramsci. And, and I was listening to them and thinking, bloody hell, these guys. These guys know all this stuff I don't know. And they're illiterate. They mm. can't, they, they, they could sign their names, but no more than that. Mm. They cannot read and write. Mm. And, and realising that, you know, the, the, and this incredible power of that sort of barefoot teaching system, which the sort of Brazilian left had begun to develop and was um, empowered particularly by liberation theology, by these sort of very um, radical Catholic priests who were trying to save people from, you know, not just their souls, mm. but save their bodies from mm. the horrendous things being done to them. Um, and, and, and just, you know, thinking this... This is where my learning about the world really begins, you know. And sort of, and and I learnt my politics from them. Um, and then, uh, and then after two years of extraordinary adventures and having all sorts of crazy things happen, and then after working in East Africa for uh, a year and a half and um, lots of crazy things there, um, I came back to Britain, and and I. Um, suddenly began to see this country in a new light. You know, it was very weird coming back to Britain. I've basically been working six years mm. in other countries. Well, tra Travelling and just going away for six months or mm. seeing different culture, different perspectives, mm. just gives you a completely different outlook, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. So it's living right. somewhere for that time, it's, uh, that's yeah. why everyone should go away. No, no. Yeah. And, and, of course, in very intense circumstances as well. You know, yeah. so, so it really sort of digs deep you know you sort of goes deep into your whole emotional yeah. life you know so it changes you doesn't it yeah yeah totally. Completely changes you a totally. person totally so i came back and um and i started to become very interested so why is britain like it is you know what what is it so it's a very strange stratified country where nothing seems to change and stuff and i suddenly started seeing this is 300 years on from what i was seeing in brazil so that land grabbing and the expulsion mm. of the local people, the enclosure, the sort of seizure of land by a few powerful people and the creation mm. of a whole political infrastructure and economic infrastructure on the back of that. That's what happened yeah. here Just in like the, the 17th century. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and that created the whole sort of power system structure and the sort of structures of capitalism, which were then exported through the East India Company and... Um, and then colonialism in general and I just saw the country in a new light and and I also started reading the poems of John Clare for the first time who was this like this peasant poet in the 19th century I mean he was he was a, a self he taught himself to read and write he was he was a he was a peasant he yeah. just lived on the land very similar to the people I've been working yeah. with in Brazil um, a genius really an amazing bloke who um and his early poems are these beautiful descriptions of the nature around him, the community, the land, mm. 
the ceremonies they had at different times of year and it was just this was a sort of peasant culture in this part little corner of Northamptonshire where, where he lived and then um, um, and then in midlife it suddenly takes a darker turn and, and he writes these poems like The Fallen Elm and The uh, Moors and The Ballad of Sordi Well which are all about basically all that being destroyed through enclosure through through the landlords beginning to kick everyone off the land and right. destroy all the beautiful places on yeah. the land as they yeah. just sort of turned it into square fields with uh, fences, fences round to yeah. keep their sheep in and um and and then he becomes an alcoholic he loses his mind and he dies in a lunatic asylum and i was reading this and i suddenly thought wait a minute I, that's what i was seeing all over the world in the places i was working indigenous people losing their land becoming alcoholics and losing their minds yeah. mm. and succumbing to this total alienation and anime and sort of psychic collapse yeah. which you see in indigenous people everywhere and then i thought hang on a second if that happened to john clare that happened to everyone mm. you know everyone was in his situation mm. once yeah and and it started in England and then it went to Ireland and then it went to Scotland and then it went to the colonies and then it went to other countries' colonies and then it went to the rest of the world and the IMF and World Bank and people are still doing it. <coughs> the US is still doing it and we're still doing it. This is the story of humanity. Mm. And you know, we wonder why we're so fucked up today, you know, why we've got we're so obsessive and addictive, mm. why why we 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 succumb so easily to consumerism, to um, you know any sort of addiction which comes our way it, you know we, we lost something mm. and and we're still looking for it mm. you know it's like it's like sort of losing your soul or your demon yeah. you know it's, it's yeah, a, yeah. You, you, and you're just sort of we're almost like ghosts wandering about looking for this thing we've lost mm. yeah yeah that's it's, an interesting way of putting it it's like um seems to me like the connection to the natural way of sort of sustaining life as opposed to the system that we all have to go and do things we don't want to do for money to get the things used yeah. to grow yeah yeah no no i, I mean I, yeah i'm no, not suggesting i mean we can't go back now there's no. too many of us you know the land can't support us in the way that it used to um we uh you know we wouldn't know what to do if we did you know we but um we've got to find a a way of living which actually meets our needs without sort of just becoming this obsessive compulsive thing which we all fall into in one way or another yeah and um you know and so this is why i've become so interested in community life yeah um in sort of sort of getting real sort of a thick participatory culture get going again um because you know that is something we can bring back you know we, we can't we, we can't all live on the land but we can have the sort of rich communities that John Clare had and yeah. the, the peasants in Brazil had and the indigenous people in West Papua had. We, that that we can have. I mean, they won't be the same kind of communities and they'll be much more diverse, mm -hmm. um, and which is great because, you know, actually you can greatly enrich your community mm. through many different people's experiences. But in our own neighbourhoods, we can build much richer neighbourhoods, much richer community lives than, than we mm. previously had. Mm. And, and then it takes you to the idea of the commons, um, this great neglected economic sphere of sort of where you have resources which a particular community manages, 
which they're not capitalism, they're not communism, they're something else entirely. Um, and you have this recognition then that actually that is going to be a much more sustainable way of living than the current way of trying to acquire pu uh, private luxury. Because if, I mean, if you think about it, the only reason why some people can live in total luxury is that not everybody is living yes, in total yeah, luxury. Yeah, that's right. Because there's simply not enough physical space or ecological space for everyone to do it. Mm. So, so for instance, if everyone in London tried to get their own swimming pool and their own tennis court and their own art collection and their own play playground for their kids and stuff, London would cover half of England, mm. right? And then England would cover half the world. And where would everyone else live? Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, yeah. you just can't do it, even in terms of space let alone in terms of resources mm. you know if everyone mm. lived like the ultra rich with their super yachts and their private jets and their multiple super homes around the world and eating their bluefin tuna sushi and pa their using mahogany paneling on their yachts and stuff you know the you know we, we would burn through the world's resources in no time at all yeah. you know mm. um, a million people living like them you know, has the same impact of five billion people yeah. li living like yeah. the average person. You know, it's just it's just out of all proportion. You can't do it. But what you can have for everyone is public luxury. You can have really great public assets. You could have great public tennis courts yes. and public yeah. swimming pools yeah. and public playgrounds and museums and art galleries mm. and all, all and public transport and all the rest of it, which can give everyone a high standard of living without putting this impossible load. Mm -hmm. on the living world and and so i sort of boil it down to this phrase private sufficiency public luxury as a sort of touchstone of what i'm trying to achieve yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah to, um, yeah i mean i know you're limited for time just to tell us about that a little bit or yeah. what you're doing now to try and you know change yeah people's and also views and, you know we've talked about um sort of the environmental crisis political crisis, sort of journalism crisis. Um, what can individuals and us do? Mm. Where sure. can we go for correct information? What can we do yeah. for to build communities? Yeah. I know these are massive sure. questions. But yeah, <laughs> those are massive questions. <laughs> <laughs> Just wrap up with that. So, so, yeah. so, so what, what we can't do is consume our way out of this. Mm. This whole sort of idea that, oh, well, you know, you buy a bamboo toothbrush or you have cotton buds made of paper not plastic and that's going to solve it it's not going to solve it you know there's no such thing as green consumerism there's just less consumerism right but that in itself is not the answer and and the fundamental answer is political action and that means getting together with other people mm. and working in concert with them to change stuff trying to do anything by yourself is going to fail it's just not going to work yeah uh, and and what I love about Extinction Rebellion and the climate strikes is that they really know that and they really see that and they know exactly you know, how to do that very effectively. And so I've been involved in a big way in yeah. both of them. Um, uh, and obviously they're evolving and you know I hope to be involved in how they might evolve as well. Um, but I think that's a big part of the answer, you know, nonviolent direct action. And it does change stuff. Yeah. It really changes stuff. You know, I mean, it, it has changed the whole global conversation on climate breakdown. And obviously that's just a start because you then need the action to, to mm. come in behind yeah. it. Yeah. And a lot of countries have now declared climate emergencies, but they're not really acting on them. But at least 
it's opened up it's progress yeah exactly mm. it has it's opened up the opportunity um and so now we've got to consolidate that obviously you've got to vote as well but voting is just part of it it's yeah. just one one of the political tools but you know there's this sort of constant involvement of in politics through joining people's movements is really important and then in terms of creating community there's now some really good examples of how you can do this very effectively there's a group called participatory city which sort of spent nine years looking around the world at sort of how do you best create a participatory culture mm-hmm. and get people involved get people working together to improve their neighborhoods to improve their lives to um overcome loneliness connect with people and they came up with a sort of algorithm for doing it really it's very really very effective and now they're implementing that in uh, barking and dagenham right um, it's the most deprived london borough and um and it's really seems to be working very well so so i think there's almost a formula now now what's it called again um participatory city okay um and um and to my mind, that is absolutely key, you know, to the renewal that we need, mm. the, the social renewal, the political renewal, the cultural renewal. It comes from getting together uh, with, pe- with people in all their wonderful diversity and exuberance and yes. seeing what all the different people can bring. You know, the, the, so everybody's got something yeah. exciting that they can transmit to other people. Yeah. And but doing it in a really simple way and you know what participatory city found was you got to have these um, very low commitment low threshold activities so like cooking together and eating together fundamental yeah. you know the the um etymology of the word companion is companes with bread mm-hmm. you know and the eating together is is really fundamental to fellowship yeah um, and 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 then sort of reclaiming green spaces and making sure they used for the community, not for people to park their cars on or just have their dog shitting on, you know. But but actually, you know, what can we do? <coughs> this green space that is going to bring people together yeah. around it. And so you know, let's have parties on it. Let's play sport on it. Let, you know, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, uh, but the people are in charge of that process. It's not just the council saying this is what we're going to do. So, I think we. Um, Join to that uh, a participatory political approach as well, where you have a lot more direct democracy, but deliberative democracy, mm. people getting together to to make decisions about their lives. And at the moment, we have this ridiculous system where you know you vote once every five years, and then the government <coughs> says, right, well, we've got a mandate to do everything we want to do for five years. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, yeah, but we didn't vote for that particular thing. Tough, you know, presumed consent. We presume that you've consented mm. because. 37% of the population voted for mm. us at the last election. Yeah. You say, well, yeah, we don't accept presumed consent in sex. Why do we accept it in politics? Mm. You know, so we should be allowed to fine-tune our decisions. Mm. And you can only do that through participatory democracy. Mm. And there's some brilliant examples. You know, In Brazilian city of Porto mm. Alegre for several years, the entire investment budget was controlled by the mm. people through participatory budgeting you know right. like fifty thousand people a year mm-hmm. getting together to set the budget and it completely transformed the city from this totally corrupt mafia dominated mm-hmm. city where all the public money went into your brother-in-law's pet project and yeah. sort of yeah. port barrel bridges to nowhere and stuff to to a city which came out um, with uh, the highest ranking of the human development on the human yeah, development yeah. index on any major city in Brazil, 
It helps with the fundamentals of life, doesn't it? The yeah. living conditions, health. Exactly. It was yeah. massively improve, massive improvement in like sanitation, yeah. and clean water, primary health care, primary education, maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates, public transport, you name it. You know, it just it completely changed people's life outcomes. And Sorry to interrupt. Um, how did that, because when I've read into that, the government at the top, they have to be willing to adopt yeah, yeah, that sort yeah, of system. Right. And that's, that's right. the sort of main bottleneck or blocking point that's to implementing right. it. Exactly. So, yeah. so how do you, how do you make that come yeah. about in the sort of well, society yeah. we live in? Yeah. So I mean, this is why voting is very important because mm. you've got to vote in a government which will is prepared to facilitate that that sort of thing happening. Yeah. Um, and um, and 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 you know you have to do it. You started in places where the government is prepared to do it, um, and. Yeah. You know, and some governments are. I mean, in, in, in Iceland, for instance, the Better Reykjavik programme, where, where the whole city, again, has been transformed yeah. by this total participatory politics. For so How do we improve the city? The people will decide. Yeah. People, I mean, it's amazing what it's yeah. done there. But, you know, that was a very sympathetic um, government which said, uh, we want you to do this. So I think, you know, one of my tasks, I see, is to sort of pick up these examples around the world and then say to people well don't you want this yeah, too we're doing it here, yeah. yeah exactly so you know if you want this you know find a political party which is going to give it to you yeah. and vote for them you know and then yeah. and then sort of let's spread yeah let's bring awareness to world. it i guess you right, could yeah. start more sort of grassroots that you infiltrate maybe the right and maybe the wrong word but infiltrate the system yeah, well, that local too. council level yeah. to make those decisions locally. Yeah, I mean we've got we've got to do that too. But you know you're not going to infiltrate it if it's basically run by oligarchs. You know if if the people who are really making the decisions are the owners of the Telegraph and the no. um, hedge fund managers who are giving their money to political parties. You know they're never going to encourage that. No. They're always going to try and stamp that out. And so you you do have to have the right political environment to operate mm. in um so you know it doesn't have to be totally right but it, it has to allow you to at least make a start mm. and then yeah as you say you, you then build it up yeah. and and you try to sort of bring whatever government local or national government more and more onto your side as you do so and that's what's happening in, in barking and dagenham you know where mm. you've got this um, Labour Council, which basically saw that they had huge problems. It used to be the stronghold of the British National Party in, in that borough. Um, there's very high turnover of people. Um, there was a lot of conflict between different communities there, big unemployment, huge issues. And, and they said, we can't carry on like this. Mm. You know, we, we've, we've got to make some really big changes. And they saw what Participatory City was doing as, as a way of creating those changes. And then, you know, they have been evolving as mm -hmm. the project has evolved. And, but, you know, that's because they're a responsive local authority. Yeah. yeah. Um, not everyone is going to be willing to let that happen. No. no, sure. And it seems like a very slow process to me. Um, and, I mean, we we met with Carl Ross, didn't we? Was a... Was a um, works with the Marshall Islands on the Paris mm. Agreement and yeah. they're saying we need to be carbon neutral by 2025. Yeah, yeah. And have we got time for these clearly great, and I don't think anyone would argue against communities that you feel involved in and projects that are sustainable and 
yeah, you'd have to be a psychopath to disagree. Yeah, yeah. Have we got time? I mean, we haven't got time not to. You know, in, in that every every year we spend not doing it is another lost year. You know, and after thirty four years of banging my head against this wall, you know, it's like I don't want any more lost years. Mm. But because we've left it so late, yeah, you know, we've got this desperate situation, um, and and this is why we also need the mass action, the Extinction Rebellion stuff, the climate strike stuff, to try to sort of trigger off centralized change within government at the same time i don't think the two things are exclusive you know we can build a much better life for ourselves through participatory politics and through uh, participatory culture at the same time as trying to save ourselves from this existential crisis by trying to change government policy at the center through mass political action mm. um, and you know the ideal world would be one where we end up much more in control of our own destiny because we've got much more day-to-day -day political say having already sort of prevented the the worst from from happening but you know that means we have to act on lots of different fronts at the same mm. time are you optimistic or pessimistic about your future children so yeah i mean it's yeah it's sometimes just all does get a bit much but I, I think what I say is that I'm, I'm pessimistic about what we do and optimistic about what we are. You know, if you look at some total of what human beings are doing, doing to the world and to each other, it's pretty bleak, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not a pretty picture at all. But if you look at what we now know we are, you know, and there's been loads of psychological work, anthropological work on this, showing that you know we've all got some selfishness and greed in us but actually they're not our dominant values yeah. and our dominant values are much more community-minded um, family-minded um, um, benevolent empathetic altruistic um, what we are is a very good thing on the whole I mean mm. we I mean and when I say we I mean the sort of general run of humanity unfortunately those who govern us are highly atypical uh, to put it crudely, we're a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. Mm. Um, you know, how do we let that happen? You know, that's one of the questions we should be asking mm. ourselves. Mm. How do we stop it from happening? Um, but um, you know, we are we are good people. We're better mm. than we think we are. Mm. And what we've got to do is to allow our good nature to come to the fore. And and if we do that, then yeah, I think we can be pretty optimistic about what's going to come out of that. That sounds like a good positive to end on. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you yeah. are. You see, you no, thought it was going to be all despair, didn't you? But <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of more chink positive of light, than Carl Ross. Chink of light and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, thank you very much, George. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you very pleasure. much. Pleasure. Mm. No yeah, so tell me what you thought. Yeah, what an interesting bloke. What do you think of George? Really, really. Mm. Definitely fascinating, yeah. mate. I could have talked to him for days. Like, so yeah, I was going to say I don't actually know how long we talked to him for, but no, I mean, I mean it was quite some time. Yeah, you're right. We could have talked to him for a long time. Yeah, the batteries ran out midway through. That's how long. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, went to pause for toilet breaks and yeah, the uh, the cleaner. Yes, the cleaner came in. No, really interesting, yeah. mate. And I mean, that was quite interesting. Yeah, I'm just going to say about the cleaner. It's quite interesting seeing him interact with her um really gave you an idea of like what kind of 
Manny is. Like, he's really sort of like humble and like a, a lovely bloke, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It was quite nice to see him, you know, not just being interviewed, but actually, you know, little section of his life sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's right. He was a nice guy because he was nice to his cleaner, yeah. which does sound very cheesy and like off, like we were um, observing him like a fly on the wall on a nature program. Yeah, well, he's a <laughs> naturalist. But na- naturalist, mate, that's it. But no, he was, mate. He was a nice, humble guy and... Um, yeah, it was really, it was just very enjoyable talking and listening to him, wasn't it? You could just listen to him for a long time. Yeah, he was a very good sort of storyteller. Yeah, storyteller, that's right. That's how he came across, wasn't mm. it? And, but I, I feel like we only like scratched the surface of the, like his tales and his adventures. You know, when he's saying about like having um, got sentenced to death in his absence and... All that stuff when he was like walking through the jungle and yeah, you know, it was like so yeah. many of those stories. I don't think we barely got to know anything really. No, not really. Um, but those stories were fascinating, mate. I'd love to hear more about them. Yeah, traveling and going over to those countries like Brazil and Indonesia and and all that. I mean, that sounded like yeah, awesome, dangerous and scary and fascinating and yeah, it made me think of like. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like a little, like a something like out of a film. I can't. I can't explain it or put it in words. But some like adventurous on a film. Yeah, he. Um, I found it quite thought provoking as well. What he was saying, you know, and I've I've seen recently as well. He's keeps saying about this sort of in social media and stuff about mm. um, like the lack of power that people have. And that, you know, the billionaire media sort of owners are using media for their own ends. And it's not mm. representative of what ordinary people want or need. And I think my biggest takeaway from him is that that needs to sort of, I need to look at that more, I think. It, it, that yeah, that fascinates me, and yeah, definitely. It, it yeah, most definitely. The thing is, we're just you know we, you can look at it that we're just like peasants, and we're all little peasants, and we're all being manipulated, and we're just uh, half the time I think of it that we're just being manipulated, and we're just being taken along on this journey, and we don't really have a choice in in our actions. It's just. Uh, we're being propelled by how the media push us and how advertising push us and how these big corporates and, and the messages are going out there. Um, but we all need to be conscious as individuals and aware of what's going on and you can make it you can make a difference on your own if you really want to. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously making as much of a difference as he can. Which yeah. arguably is a lot more than most people are able to, and it's like but if it, a drop in the ocean, isn't it? Yeah, but if there was a thousand people, or if if there was a hundred thousand people, which is still a drop in the ocean, were doing as much as he could, that would be making a significant difference and a significant change, wouldn't it? Yeah, 
but it doesn't happen because you're just everyone's happy in their own life and they're just getting and that's what i was trying to say they're getting propelled and pushed in the direction that that the higher powers if you like want you to go yeah you need to step out of the bubble and that's what he has done yeah i mean that's kind of like when what the idea was when we started this wasn't it to look at alternatives to like just nine Definitely. to five drudgery um yeah. with like different jobs or like interesting careers or whatever but then mm. like hobbies and stuff and the hobbies now are sort of having spoke to him a little bit it's like the hobbies are almost like a like a plaster like a sticking plaster over something mm then you just put up with everything night to five because you go and do this interesting thing at the weekend. And I think yeah, I think I'd like yeah, a distraction exactly. I definitely like to talk to more people like him who are really like living it. I mean, I I still want to yeah. do just weird hobbies and stuff and you know <laughs> unusual activities and that because <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... No, but you, you want something meaningful. It's about getting some kind of purpose behind what you're doing. Yeah. And creating some kind of change and feeling good about creating that change and doing something good. Yeah. I mean, having spoken to George, it, it's it's changed some of the people that are on my sort of like wish list. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, more investigative journalists and look at like subjects rather than necessarily like, what's it like being a journalist? Yeah. Like, okay. What are you investigating? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Well, that's what we need to start working on, I guess. Yeah. Let's start looking into finding those people. Yeah. Or if anyone's out there listening that knows or can put us into contact, I guess, or if there's anyone who has got some interesting stories. Yeah, definitely willing, um, open for people suggesting people stories. Yeah. Yeah, hobbies, activities. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's quite difficult finding these people. That, and yeah, it is. But uh, that was on the whole, that was really enjoyable. And like I said, I, I mean, we should definitely speak to speak to him again. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd like to things have developed. to talk to him again. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that I mean, yeah, that was really good. All right, tell me, so great. So we're obviously going to discuss about episode four, I guess, and you have planned something, Kai, you told me. What have you planned? Yeah, um, so I've found a hobby that we can have a little go at. little go at, right. Um, yeah, so we're, we're going to get involved and we're you know, going to join in and have a go. Maybe you want to, yeah, tell me what it is first before you say we're going to get involved. What is it? <laughs> Oh no, we're we're getting involved. Right. We're doing it. Um, yeah, it's mermaid jade. Mermaid jade. Yeah. Okay, okay. So we're going swimming like mermaids or mermen, probably. Right. <laughs> With the whole tail on and all the rest of it, and going swimming. All right. Okay. Um, not too short to think about that. No, uh, me neither. But it should be fun, and we we'll get so to find this? out, like you know, why she. Why she dresses as a mermaid and swims about. So let me just understand this. She goes to a swimming pool, puts this big rubber tail on. Yep. And swims yep, yep. with and, and looks like a mermaid? Dresses yep. up like a mermaid? 
Yeah, you got it. All right, and we're going to be doing the same thing. Yes, because we've got to try it out. No point just watching a mermaid. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, well, this is, uh, yeah, this will be interesting. Yeah. We're definitely, I'm going to take some pictures. Yeah, take some pictures, maybe some video. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it might be fun. You might enjoy it. I might enjoy it, that's right, okay. Uh, okay, all right, mate, all right, let's, uh, all right, we'll see what happens, yeah? Yeah. I'm trying to be enthusiastic. You sound very enthusiastic. No, I am, mate. I'm open. I'm open to getting in the water with a big rubber tail and, and, and prancing around and yeah. like a merman or whatever. Cool. Yeah, maybe some little coconut bra or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to grow my hair for it, mate. <laughs> cool. All right, mate. No, I'll look, I'll look forward to that. I'm glad you've uh, organised something so thoroughly enjoyable. And um, Yeah. Yeah, leave it with me. All right, mate. Cool. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's catch up when we do that. All right, see you later. See you later. This old world is driving me mad. I got one face happy and the other one sad. You don't know this town is tearing me down. You're coming over to this world ain't round